Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and their writing process. Today's guest is a writer for SP Nation's Indie Cornrows, a staple of Pacers Twitter, and one of the most intelligent writers in the NBA blogging sphere. It's Caitlin Cooper. How you doing? Oh, I'm good. Now, now people are going to expect so much of my <laughs> verbal verbal responses here with that high compliment. So now I'm going to have to be guarded. <laughs> I want to. I'm I'm curious. I have no idea about this. Did, I know obviously you cover the Pacers, but did you grow up in Indiana? Yes, yes. I'm still I'm still living in Indiana. I've lived here my whole life. So okay, cool. What's the basketball vibe like? Because I've never been, and everyone always talks about just how there's like this special connection with basketball in indiana yeah you know that's actually pretty interesting because i grew up um a coach's kid my dad coached for about a decade of high school boys basketball in indiana so i was kind of the person like i always say this um if you've seen remember the titans i was kind of <laughs> hayden panettiere's character you know minus all of the racist overtones and <laughs> in that movie like right. set that aside that doesn't apply but i was always tagging along to games scouting trips as much as i could i wanted to overhear you know what coaches were saying from other schools about how they were gonna you know whatever x's and o's tactic they were going to use against whatever player was a standout that year but back then yeah like you'd go to sectional games here in indiana to be crazy you'd be waiting in lines you'd have to buy tickets in advance and i think what's interesting is over the last few years my dad isn't coaching anymore but he does do broadcasting and we talk about it a lot like um webcast series that they do for high school games and you don't see the gyms quite as full as they used to be and i'm not sure what exactly has led to that and i won't speak to the state as the whole because i still think this is a basketball state but i don't think that it's quite the Hoosier hysteria necessarily, at least in my corner, that it, it used to used to be when I was growing up. But hmm. that's that's so interesting as like a bit of a contrast here with in Canada and Ontario, where basketball was never the number one thing. It was always hockey, and now we're sort of living in this era where all of a sudden people are putting up basketball nets everywhere because of the Raptors and uh, all these young players seem to care more about basketball as a number one sport over other things um it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy like seeing all that stuff happen and especially when I grew up knowing that Indiana was a place where this was the way it was all the time like the basketball was the number one thing there and it's it was just such an interesting contrast between here and with hockey and stuff like that so I always thought that was interesting so I, I had to ask you about that right away, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I brought you on to talk about your, well, one of your most recent pieces that you uh, posted on Indie Cornrows, of course, which is called On Malcolm Brogdon and Victor Oladipo Sharing Point Guard Duties. So obviously the Indiana Pacers brought in Malcolm Brogdon in the offseason. Um, they had an interesting offseason. They brought in Brogdon for four years, $85 million. So just off the top, what were your first thoughts when the signing happened? Wow. So that, that like first 10 to 20 minutes of free agency was like a complete whirlwind for the Pacers <laughs> because yeah. the two or three days prior, like the whole week, it seemed pretty assured that Ricky Rubio was going to be their guy. And there was kind of, I felt like some tea leaves that could be read there that would lead you to believe that. Cause I remember after they drafted Goga, Kevin Pritchard had a, uh, 
interview, a video interview that was on Pacers.com where he made a comment about, you know, how polished European players are and how mm. he felt that Goga was ready to, you know, be able to get minutes right away because of his years of professional experience and that that they might want to try to, they had Bogdanovich in that way and that they might want to try to bring in another player. And right away, like as soon as I believe Kevin O'Connor had that report on Ricky first, as soon as he reported that, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense because Kevin Pritchard kind of tipped his hand there a little bit that they might bring in another European player with lots of professional experience. And then that all turned very quickly. There's that butterfly effect where, you know, Nikola Mirotic decides he wants to go back to Europe, which then led the Jazz to pounce on Bogdanovich from the Pacers, which then I guess kind of created some um, unsuredness from Ricky about whether he wanted to play for the Pacers or not. And then that kind of all opened the door that the Pacers were able to swoop in with the Malcolm Brogdon offer. But I actually had a draft completely finished and ready to go where I had done a lot of research on stuff for how Ricky could fit with Victor and where all that was going. And I remember seeing it. I, I had a tweet, something like, Oh, to all the drafts I loved before or something like that. (laughs) So it was really hard to kind of wrap my head around it because what you were expecting of the team turned out to be, really different and you know then pretty shortly after that it was so kind of Matt Moore to kind of shout out oh we're gonna get this breakdown of Malcolm Brogdon in my head I was like oh I'm so flattered by that but I'm also like I haven't even thought about this because I never (laughs) thought it was even a possibility so we had a lot of other coverage at at Indy Cornrows that we needed to wrap up in July which was kind of nice because it gave me a long period to really watch as much of Brogdon as I could and watch lots of clips and kind of hear what he himself envisioned Mm -hmm. for what he would be doing at the Pacers and mold all that together for a piece. But when you say that, my initial reaction without hearing Malcolm's perspective whenever he was introduced was what the piece was going to be titled is, is this the dawning of the age of point Oladipo? Like that, that was Mm. kind of what I thought is maybe this is where they're pivoting. And then to hear Malcolm say that he thought his best position was point guard. That's kind of what all of this was born from. So, right. So, immediately then in terms of fit like obviously this article that's what it's about is about the fit and about the idea of Brogdon talking about wanting to play more point guard but was your initial reaction of the fit just like this is going to be an issue this is going to be a problem especially when he immediately comes out with all the point guard comments or was it okay I mean this guy's pretty versatile um you know the Pacers have just lost a bunch of key pieces like he's a he's a good addition and maybe we'll be able to make up some of that ground even if playing point guard is something that he's really focused on right I mean I think a lot of it circles back I think just the overall fit with him and Victor I think you feel good about I mean I think the general consensus there Mm -hmm. is he can take pressure off of Oladipo without taking away from Oladipo I mean and I think that kind of went back to too that sometimes it's underrated Darren Collison that it was ready. It was time to move on there. But I think sometimes we overlook that when Victor first came to the Pacers and they signed Darren, that because he was such a, a person amenable to having fewer touches and being able to make an impact off the ball and such a contrast to what Victor had came with, with Westbrook, that that kind of opened the door for Victor to be able to explore the limits of what he could do. And, And I think that it's pretty easy to look at Malcolm and think, oh, he's kind of a supercharged Darren Collison. And I really wanted to Mm. dig in and compare those two players and see where are we going. But overall, I think that my overall opinion of it goes back to um, what everything I think will go back to for the Pacers next year is how effective Miles Turner and and Sabonis are on the floor. And Mm -hmm. with a big contrast between Brogdon and Darren being that Darren – 
and the, kind of the Pacers as a whole like to take those pull-up twos and those pull-up shots, and that isn't who Malcolm Brogdon is. He doesn't he doesn't take a lot of those pull Some of it's because he, he downshifts and gets guys on his back when he comes off a pick, but it's also that he's just not super comfortable, and he has a slower release when he comes dribbling off a pick to pull up for those shots, be it a three or a two. And he, you know, I think I had in the article that he took about nine total step-back shots. That That isn't really something that's in his arsenal either, but Darren – very much that's his shot that when he comes off a pick and a big's in a drop he pulls up into that comfort zone and that's where they've been but if you're Brogdon and you're a driver what does that mean when you have Sabonis and Miles Turner on the floor unless you're willing to rethink how you're positioning those two you know I think type of moving shields in a way so that he has driving space to get into the lane and the same goes for Victor I mean we just haven't seen a lot because you know Victor got hurt and because they haven't really played Miles and Sabonis together, we don't really know how this is all going to fit together yet until they kind of give it the old college try that hasn't really happened up until this point. Yeah, the Pacers are it's always interesting to me because people don't tend to talk about them a lot. Even last season when they were one of the best defensive teams in the league, they didn't seem to get a lot of conversation around them. And when Oladipo was healthy, I don't really know why, but I really do think they could have made some significant noise last season, if not for the old Debo loss, which I remember very viscerally because that game was against Toronto. And he, oh yes, <laughs> yeah, he fell running with Siakam, and uh, the initial reaction I remember from a lot of uh, Raptors fans was, "Oh, he, you know, it looked like he kind of went under Siakam while Siakam was in the air." And initially, I remember a lot of fans thinking that this was like a dirty play, but it wasn't because he just ruptured his quad tendon, so he just went down. I remember that and and uh, the uh, just the somberness obviously that overcame that entire game. So uh, that was obviously disappointing. But you know, I re- I really do think. I mean, this team's been shaken up so much, like you mentioned right off the top. Uh, they've lost guys like obviously Bogdanovich. I think was a significant loss. Thaddeus Young, who I think has always been underrated defensively. Kylo Quinn's a good backup big, and Darren Collison, who we talked about. Uh, it's like this is going to be a different team and. Brogdon talking about, you know, wanting to handle point guard duties in a role that he's rarely played in his three years in the NBA, even though he's mentioned as well, wanting to be like malleable for for Oladipo, uh, like you put in the article, but he is more naturally a two. I'm just curious, like, for your thoughts on should Brogdon ideally be taking on this role, like in an idyllic world, would he be playing more point guard? Would you like to see him with the ball in his hands more often? Because, I mean, he had, like, a decent usage rate last season with the uh, with the Bucks, but it was obviously wasn't something that would be put higher just because he's uh, has the ball in his hands more often as the one. Right. So, I mean, I think I put in there with the section whenever I talked about when he would have the ball in his hands that – Unless he does become a little bit more comfortable, which I would imagine in a Nate McMillan system that you're about going to have to, unless he does get a little bit more comfortable taking those shots when he's the one, because so many of their actions are triggered with ball screens that taking those in between shots or even if, you know, a pull up three that you're going to risk that his defender is going to start sneaking under their screens and prioritizing him as a driver because he is, I mean, he is a good driver for one and two, if you're not going to take that shot, there's really no reason to be going over the pick and what type of extra stress does that put on, you know, Victor, once he comes back or Jeremy lamb in the immediate, if there's an extra defender constantly waiting at the nail and maybe teams are more willing to look at that now because of what you just said, he hasn't really been in this role a lot, especially not as a primary 
in his th- in his three years in the NBA. So if, if teams are, you know, kind of getting on the scouting report, I guess I should say that it you'll be seeing it showing up more. But I kind of see that for the Pacers, especially if they're going to be starting Sabonis, I think Malcolm slides in more naturally as what I would term an off-ball initiator. Mm-hmm. Somebody who could come off of a dribble handoff screen and you're using Sabonis more as that pivot point, that connector. I mean, I didn't have a stat in there that I could have used that Sabonis last year was – he almost finished out the year as the Pacers leader in passes per game. He was just Hmm. a shade below Darren, but he was the only player in the NBA that averaged at least 50 passes in under 25 minutes per game. And that's because he just kicks up so much dust in between the two elbows going back and forth and connecting both sides of the floor. And that's going to be really important. I think for the Pacers this year, because which I mentioned in a a different piece I wrote this week, but Kevin Pritchard kind of really emphasized going into free agency that, you know, we had a team that could move the ball and we, we were an unselfish team, but we didn't really have a lot of, he didn't say this specifically. I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines here that they didn't have a lot of top tier above average passers for their positions. And Sabonis Mm -hmm. really, when you look from top to bottom is, is, quite arguably the only person that is an above average passer for his position next year on this team. So I think you're going to be looking to him, even though he's kind of might end up being the person that they flip. If this doesn't work out, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy hmm. in that how important is a skill that you really don't have a way to replicate on the roster. Like if, if you're running a smaller lineup or even one with miles and you have both, you know, Jeremy lamb and TJ Warren out there or Victor who are all three very much like, head down, score first wings, you need somebody that you're going to be able to, you know, get the ball to side to side. And that's, that's probably one of Sabonis's biggest strengths. So I kind of see Malcolm in that way that, and especially if he's coming off screens or he's coming off a DHO and what type of attention that will draw away from Victor, where maybe he can go away from those picks and he's getting clearer lines to the basket because of that more than he would have last year with Darren or, you know, I mean, even to some degree, Bogdanovich, because even though Bogdanovich is such a lethal shooter coming off a screen and so good at reads, if he comes clear around a stagger, he isn't going to make a pass to a roller in the same way that Malcolm is. That was kind of a blind spot for him. So I would see Malcolm that way. But, you know, I, I, I learned a valuable lesson from Victor that I don't count out summer internal development anymore that, you know, maybe Malcolm comes back and he he's added some of an in-between game to his game. So... Yeah, I think with the evidence that we have currently, like, I mean, your article definitely convinced me that I think having him slotted in as more of a secondary playmaker is is probably the better route to go, at least at this point. Um, and maybe when you're, you know, slowly kind of maybe working him into into what he wants to do or try to do or, and, and have more freedom there. Um, I didn't realize quite how good, like, I knew he was a good spot-up shooter. I didn't realize how good he was. Um, like, he was in the 95th percentile last season on like a significant yeah. number of possessions. Um, and obviously I, I got to see Brogdon uh, very up close when the Bucks played the Raptors in the playoffs and, and just how much uh, every Raptors fan in the world shuddered whenever he entered the game because um, he made a significant impact guarding Kawhi Leonard and, and uh, just adding some offense to that team that they needed stretching the floor. Uh, I, so here for the, for the Pacers, he's obviously kind of, you talk about how, in comparison with Collison, who's a guy they just lost at at the one, the details are really important. So, like you kind of mentioned off the top, like Collison's like a very careful player, but at the same time a willing pull up shooter, and and that's obviously an important skill to have. 
Um, he's a veteran of that position. He's used to running a lot of pick and roll, and Brogdon hasn't really <clears throat> hasn't really done these things or necessarily done them well. And if he's going to be handling more, then obviously he needs to be able to, to do some things that he hasn't, including you know pulling up more and maybe running some more pick and roll. Do you think he's going to have that freedom right away in Indiana, or do you think that uh, you know maybe it'll give him more confidence with some of these things if he does? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it's going to go back to to Victor, and I think there's a lot of sort of intrigue around when he's going to be ready to come back into the lineup. Some people seem to be thinking it's going to be sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. I think Woj's initial timeline over the summer was somewhere between December and January, but you know, who knows on that front. But if you're looking at a starting lineup and let's imagine that Victor isn't ready to go. So if it's if it's Brogdon, Lamb, Warren, Sabonis and Turner, which is what I would expect that the opening night lineup will be unless, you know, Victor pulls some sort of surprise on everybody that I think that, yeah, I mean, if assuming Nate McMillan's offense stays similar to what it's going to be, I think, I mean, both he and Kevin Pritchard sounded like at the introductory press conference that he is their point guard. He is their person who's going to be the primary ball handler initiator. And, you know, that isn't really necessarily going to be TJ and Jeremy can both run the pick and roll, but they're both ideally play finishers. I don't think there's mm-hmm. somebody that, that you're really going to want initiating offense. So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. something that he's going to have to come in ready to do. And that's why early on in the season, there's just so many unknowns up in the air for the Pacers from, from Malcolm becoming a primary early on to what they're going to do with some of these passing concerns to the Turner Sabonis experiment to how Nate McMillan's going to handle coaching a roster that's more geared towards offense than defense. And I just think some of it's, it's going to be, and even when you look at the FIBA world cup and some of the the travel that Sabonis and Miles are going to have, especially with their preseason trip to India. Yeah. I think there's going to be a pretty stiff learning curve early on. So, yeah, um, that I can definitely see. There's a lot of guys that are going to be. Uh, I feel like they'll be uh, kind of tired coming into training camp. Um, that's one of the big reasons a lot of guys over here in Canada that they didn't end up playing for the national team was because the NBA is so wide open this season, and the you know NBA teams want their guys there and they want to be there and be ready. So. The fact that uh, the World Cup this year is all the way in China is, uh, is a pretty big deal in terms of getting NBA guys to go. Um, so Brogdon is already, I would say, so he's already better at uh, penetrating than Collison. That's one thing that he's already better at. And creating more kickout opportunities and manipulating defenses that way. I'm curious on your thoughts about that skill. Is it is it more or less valuable than pull-up shooting for the Pacers in particular? Or is, you know, Brogdon learning to be able to create his own offense uh, something that's necessary and potentially more valuable than something he's already got in being able to penetrate defenses? Right. So there's actually a quote from Nate McMillan that didn't make it into the final piece, but I'll, I'll, I think it's pretty telling for this question. So... I was not here to hear this in person, so I don't know exact context, but this was Nate on the night that they drafted Goga. He says, and I quote, We're going to play to our strengths. If that's two bigs out there on the floor and pounding inside, we'll take advantage of that. And later on, he kind of added on there about, you know, some teams aren't necessarily built to take more threes. And and when the season was over, they talked that they wanted to up their volume of threes. I think it's been about three years running that they've taken 
you know, in the bottom 10 or bottom five of the league in three point attempt, right. Even though they've had a top percentage and, and you could point in years prior that that was the reason they had a top percentage because Nate very much values quality threes over the quantity of threes that they take. So in the years where they had like, you know, the rosters with Monte Ellis and Rodney Stuckey and Lavoie Allen and Kevin Serafin, it's like, wow, how did that team even finish in the top five of three point percentage? But last year they had more players that probably could have handled more volume. And I think this year they definitely would have more players that could probably handle higher volume. But, you know, he's kind of saying here that, you know, well, we're going to be juggling three bigs and maybe that fits us more to be pounding the ball inside. And if that's the case, you know, you can run some split cut stuff with Malcolm and have him be shooting threes and hoping that you're kind of using, you know, inverted gravity in that way that you're freeing up spots for him. But if you're going to be running a lot of double big, double post, high, low offense, then you're not going to be having the same driving lanes for Malcolm. So to your point and your question about which is going to be more important, if they're going to be packing the paint, then that in between game and being able to hit a pull-up three would probably be more important. But if they're mm-hmm. going to be running more role replace stuff with Miles and Turner, or with Miles and Turner, with Turner and Sabonis, <laughs> or if you're going to be, you know, taking and borrowing some of what they did with Brooke Lopez with Miles last year and be getting more people out of the point, then certainly I think that what Malcolm does is going to be more valuable because so much of what Darren did is is was between the two wings and in an East-West orientation, and they weren't getting a lot of that penetration to open up like what i said like the kickouts and the swing swing threes and and they also ranked in the bottom of, of free throw attempts they didn't hit free throws that great either but that's a long time running trend for the pacers too so i think like i said i think a lot of it's just going to go back to what type of a system is nate going to implement with this roster that in some regards one thing kind of begets the other yeah one and, and one of the things you suggest in in talking about all this stuff is moving Turner to the corner rather than just having him down the dunker spot. Um, do you think he can continue to evolve as a shooting big because he's been pretty good like last season he shot you know over league average thirty eight point eight percent on two point six attempts like that's that's legitimate like he can shoot and stretch the floor so do you think that you'll see him do more of that as this season goes on? yeah I mean it. I think somewhat the dunker spot can be a little bit outdated. I think even sometimes when they would have Miles there, I never really understood why if Sabonis is coming down the lane on the roll, why aren't you a, why aren't you having Miles with an opposite cut going to the top of the key? That puts so much pressure on the tagger to have to account for both of those opposing forces. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't really do that. And I mean, he took about less than 20 corner threes, which ideally is sweet spots more above the break, more in that free throw line extended out to three range but if he could get over there to the corner and you're right he does he shoots pretty decently I hope that they use him more as a stretch five because I think that's that's who Miles is at his core in the way that God intended (laughs) he is somebody that's blocking shots and stretching the floor but he doesn't always get to be actualized as that because of what the roster has been and that that's going to go back to some of what it's going to be like with Sabonis because so often last year when he played with Thad you know Thad's a low volume three-point shooter and he goes through long droughts of times where he's he isn't going to hit the three and I don't I think teams are pretty content to to let him try to shoot that shot but because of that if, if he hit a few shots out of the pick and pop it'd be the timeout and then you could be pretty predictable that the team would come out and cross match it they Boston cross-matched pretty much everything in the playoffs against them mm-hmm. where 
Miles wasn't really drawing Aaron Baines to be able to pull him out into the rim. Sabonis was, or Thad was. And Sabonis is so much a load around the rim, and he isn't really somebody that's going to step out and hit a lot of threes that teams have a lot of incentive that and Miles doesn't really get to draw that, that rim protector out into space or drag them out to sea, so to speak. So it's interesting to see how the rest of the roster fits around him and how it impacts his overall individual development. Cause you kind of saw that even in the world cup game against Australia earlier this week, how, how much teams defenses impact his productivity because the first game versus Australia, I mean, he really made an impact in the pick and pop, especially with Kemba running point. And then by the time the next game came around, because he was pulling Baines and Bogut into space. And by the time the next game came around that the, the Australia had adjusted by forcing the ball out of Kemba's hands and then pre-rotating to his, his popping location. And then that kind of makes miles can get a little bit antsy in those four on three situations. So a lot of it still with miles depends on so much of what he does on the floor kind of depends on how teams defend him. And I'm not sure it's going to be an ideal scenario with another big out there who isn't going to step out and hit the three, unless that's an area that Sabonis makes strides in the summer. So we, we, we shall see on that front. Yeah. And talking about Sabonis, I mean, so in, with Brockton, uh, Brockton as a potential off ball initiator, you know, you write about how that could potentially get him to space to go downhill. Opens up a bunch of uh, opens up a bunch of options. Uh, it seems like a pretty reliable go to with him at least at this point. How much do you think the Pacers are planning on using Sabonis as the offensive hub? Because I've seen a lot of talk about this, and obviously he was great last season and runner up for Most Improved. Had a fantastic year. Is one of the best, probably the best passer on the team. I suppose, like you, like you said. Um, so. Do you think that the Pacers are going to be running a lot of their offense starting with him this year? I mean, I, I would suspect so. I mean, I, I dropped that stat earlier about how he, he was the almost led the team in passing and then was mm-hmm. one of the few people that averaged over 50 in less than 25 minutes per game. And, and Kevin Pritchard said at the end of the year that, you know, in exit interviews that Sabonis had mentioned that he, he wanted a bigger role and, and thought really – I mean, he's obviously going to be starting, but if you want to give him a bigger role, that's a, that's a pretty good starting place. And that's really already what he was doing with the bench last year. I mean, he and Tyreek Evans ran a lot of pick and roll, but Tyreek was at times in and out of the lineup and and didn't necessarily play up to what I think the standard that some people were expecting of him. But a lot of times, if he wasn't on the floor, then that's what Sabonis was doing, was acting as a hub. I mean, building that offense around him whenever he came in off the bench. So I would suspect that he will have a bigger role. We'll see whenever all the pieces come together, but they also kind of talked about wanting to, that Miles kind of wants to have more of a two-way impact. Last year, he kind of established himself on the defensive end and kind of let his shots come from that. Whether, you know, he wasn't so worried is I, I shouldn't say it that way. I should say that whether his shot fell or what touches he got didn't impact his defensive effort as much as they had in years prior. He very much focused on establishing himself on the defensive end. But if he wants to have more of a two-way impact, how all those touches are going to get divvied up between those two plus having two scoring wings and, you know, maybe maybe some of that will land with Malcolm. But I would expect that, that Sabonis will have a larger role. So in short, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm 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 fascinated by like and, and you already mentioned this obviously, but about his shooting because when you talk about bigs who are offensive hubs, they tend to be able to stretch the floor at least somewhat. And you mentioned in the article you're concerned about how much attention he can command there in that spot. Um, so obviously, then in uh, conjunction, Brogdon's ability to create his own shot remains 
a vital component of this. But um, I, I find that interesting because, you know, I uh, per, just spent part of uh, last season and obviously the playoffs watching the Raptors integrate Marcus Gasol, who has developed his game to the point where he's shooting threes all the time, but it is also a, an option as an offensive hub at the at the top of the key there. So I, I find that interesting that uh, uh, the Pacers will have to deal with that and see if Sabonis can kind of maybe make some strides in, in uh, punishing guys if they just end up sagging off of him all the time. Yeah, right, because I think when you noticed last year that about the only time, I mean, he took less than 20 total threes last year. I think about the only time he's really willing to take the three is when he really has time to set with it and kind of line up the seams and be Mm -hmm. able to take an open shot. I did see a quote earlier this summer from Jonas Valanciunas over with the, who I'm sure you're familiar with, (laughs) um, over with Lithuania where he had made a comment. Somebody had asked them about how how – two centers are going to be able to play for Lithuania. And, you know, obviously Jonas and, and Miles are very different players. But he said, well, Sabonis is, is willing to step out and and shoot the three. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be interested to see here this weekend whenever Lithu- Lithuania is playing because the two of them didn't play that many minutes together in the friendlies. I want to say it was under like 50 minutes together when they yeah. played because they kind of sat and rested them. And then Sabonis had food poisoning, and I think Valanciunas might have been dealing with you know, an ankle or I can't remember what it was, but they haven't played a lot together. So that'll be a, a good sneak peek to see if Sabonis is a little bit more willing to step out and shoot because that definitely had an impact on his numbers, his productivity against Boston in the playoffs because Boston was really focusing on on the fact that Sabonis isn't super care, um, comfortable going to his right hand. So they were kind of shooing him away from the post by sitting on his hip whenever he turned middle and, and really were pulling – defenders middle whenever he was coming off the roll off of Thad and Corey Joseph they were willing to kind of split the floor in half off of those two to an extent so it it, uh, I don't have the exact number in front of me but his his shot distribution really changed from the regular season to the playoffs in terms of how many shots he was getting in the restricted area versus how far he was pushed out to the perimeter and what that did to his field goal percentage so it would definitely open up his game if he if he could one get a little bit more comfortable going to his right as he is with his left and two if he was just a little bit more willing to hit and knock down some of those shots and and obviously too if you know that's just the difference between tj warren and thad that if if warren's adaptation into a multi-level score and the way that he kind of exploded from three last year if he's out there standing in the corner versus thad then maybe maybe sabonis isn't seeing the same degree of goalies that that he was seeing last year in the paint if they choose to go smaller, if, if Miles is in the corner. That's that's a little bit different look than what he would have been seeing last year when they were planting one or the other of those two guys just straight in the dunker spot. So th- there's ways to work around it, but you definitely want to see internal development from both of them. Yeah. So, okay, so moving to Oladipo here for a second. Um because your article, so your article structured kind of in three parts, with um, starting with Brogdon, obviously as kind of the kind of the new guy, the new addition here, and then Oladipo, and then talking about defense. And one of the things that hit me right off the top, uh, because I mean I watched the Pacers last season, but I obviously didn't follow them like you did, and I have a very sort of broad, basic understanding of how the season went. So I was fascinated by when how you broke down the Oladipo season, and that obviously he only played thirty six games, but there were these distinct periods that you talk about and the first one being the higher usage rate that he started with and then there was this struggle of finding balance and then of course the injury that ended his season and this period of weirdness that you call um, kind of like a 
quasi-purgatory, <laughs> which I love. And he was doing a bunch of weird things, like waiting, refusing to attack, it seemed like, or making predetermined reads. Do you have any idea of like, what, what was going on here? Was it like just his struggle of trying to get his teammates involved and also get his own, cause he had to get his own shots, or what was going on there? Right, so... Yeah, I definitely wanted to include that in the section because you start early on in the season, and in one game in particular sta- stood out with the with the high usage percentage. They were in Houston, and I think most people know that early in the season, Houston's defense, like their switching defense wasn't even really that good. They go down to Houston, and I think Victor ended up shooting about 7 of 24, and he had three turnovers. And one thing I noticed that stood out in that game is one of Victor's kind of signature moves is that when he draws a big on a switch, he likes to retreat dribble, and then he he launches Mm -hmm. himself kind of at the three-point line into a shot. Well, they're using Clint Capella to kind of – he was following Victor out on those retreat dribbles, and when he'd do that, he was funneling him into Houston's rotations and making – forcing him to drive into rotation because he – he couldn't step out of the three-point line because there was Clint Capella. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Victor is a selfish player by any means. And hopefully that didn't come off in the article. But um, when he when he's forced to drive into rotation like that, he drops his head a lot. So he doesn't always have the best sight lines. And then that kind of leads him to just taking more shots because he doesn't have those passing outlets to make. And you, you saw that pretty readily in those games where he, when he was trying to make those cross-court kickouts to – Bogdanovich the pass either you know sailed out of bounds or wasn't quite on target but yeah so then he goes through that period where he was he had a higher usage than any season that Paul George played he was he was seeing extra defenders I mean another thing that stood out in that game is that they were even bringing their strong side corner defender off of that and that that was pretty eye-opening because that's a huge no-no so he's kind of seeing three defenders every time he's driving off a pick and that that was pretty regular in the early going of the season and then he goes out and he misses 11 games with what they just described as knee soreness at the time and and while he's gone the Pacers kind of find a stride they they won at a decent clip better than they did last year when they went 0 of 8 in the games that Victor didn't play and I think Victor kind of needed to find this balance of, okay, my teammates won some games without me, and how do I ease my way back in coming off an injury versus, you know, what should I be? Should I be assertively looking for my own shot or, you know, whatever it may be? So he plays the Wizards, and he doesn't even take his first shot until five minutes left in the second quarter. And that kind of started raising some red flags for me, particularly in that game, because neither he nor John Wall took a shot in the restricted area. And I remember thinking after that contest, you know, something doesn't, are, are both of them feeling okay? Like something that doesn't quite seem right there when those two players haven't got a single shot in the paint. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like the Wizards were trapping him or, you know, something along that lines. And then, you know, kind of lo and behold, both of them have other injuries. So I think it was just kind of this mixture of things that were going on in between him missing those 11 games and being injured. I'm not I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. But you could, you could see some signs where he didn't really exactly have the same lift coming off a shot where he'd get in the paint and kind of go off of – one leg and not as if it's a one leg fadeaway, but as if he didn't want to put a lot of pressure on the, on the knee that had been bothering him. And then also like just watching him turn into end and not wanting to push off as much. So I don't know if there was some lingering soreness from the initial injury and then just trying to, you know, find that balance because I mean, you look back at some of those rosters that Paul George had, and I do think that Victor overall had more help on last season's team than some of the teams, certainly not the Eastern conference finals teams for Paul George, but the late ones before he, you know, ended up in Oklahoma city that, that Victor had more help. And I think he wanted to be a good teammate and kind of balance that. But there was just, 
as I wrote, just a lot of weirdness and those months leading up to him rupturing his quad tendon and and that moment where that pass that i cite was kind of one where it was like hey here's some here's some progress not that victor had a bad season he certainly didn't he was an all-star but there was some regression in certain areas and that was one pass where that would really open up and change his game for him and that was something that i definitely wanted to touch on on what his season was and what it could look like if if he and brogdon are on the floor and he's initiating more of the offense and what that would mean for both of them yeah, I was thinking about, so is that sort of the next step for, for Depot then, being able to uh, make passes like that more consistently and more on target and on time and being able to penetrate, and especially for the, for the corners? I mean, like we talked about earlier, Brogdon's a deadly spot-up shooter. That's something we already know he can do at a high rate. And obviously, I mean, you bring up in the article as well, like on the wide-open shots, it's important to note that on the wide-open shots, he's fantastic, and on the open shots, open as NBA.com defines them anywhere, where there's someone within six feet, uh, he doesn't shoot nearly as well. So that just makes it even more imperative that uh, Oladipo not only develops the skill where he's able to make these passes and, and have them on target, but be able to do them quickly and, and and just have all the timing right and all that stuff. Is that really the next step for, you know, the Pacers to kind of get to the next level with Oladipo at the helm if he comes back healthy? Yeah, you know, I think so. You look back, I mean, he wasn't in the playoffs this year, obviously, but you look back to that series with Cleveland. I don't know how much you watched that, but, I mean, Cleveland escalated from – from single coverage to soft doubles to hard traps. And you kind of see that Victor kind of defaults to sort of these, like, I want to say meek and mild passes to the, to his two release valves, which is either the slot or there at the free throw line coming off a screen. And, And it's easy for teams to play one pass away defense when he does that until he can kind of develop this next, these next tier passes, whether it be a skip pass or a cross court pass or like a hook pass where you dribble in and find that passing window and throw it back to the slot in that way, instead of it leading to so many offensive resets. And I think that would have been true whether they added Brogdon or they didn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just so that they're sure that they can attack in those four on three situations. And some of that goes back to a difference between Sabonis and miles because miles still is kind of trying to figure out, um, when it's the right time to slip versus roll versus dive versus pop. Whereas Sabonis is a little bit more natural releasing from a screen and finding the open spot on the floor and then making a quick read out of those plays. And, and, but you know, that becomes a little bit harder if teams are loading up on those spots, but if they are and Victor can make those passes, then that would open up the game. That would have opened up that series a lot when, especially when you looked at the three middle games when Victor's field goal percentage really dropped and he was struggling to adjust to those traps and, and they didn't do a lot of, I mean, to the, to victors in his defense they didn't do a lot to relieve that congestion um preemptively like they didn't use a lot of ram screens or stuff to make that second defender that was coming out to him a little bit slower to get up there so yeah i mean i think that that would definitely change a lot of things that was one thing that i had penciled in last year ahead of the season that you know i really want to watch how victor develops as a passer and how he's creating space for himself and you you did see some some growth from him in that regard and the little bit of brief time that he played with how he was snaking his dribble and adjusting around around screens to kind of screens to continue creating separation so I think that's the next step for him yeah and and building off of that idea of of his improved passing 
do you think the half court offense needs to speed up in general to to be able to hum more consistently? Obviously, that's maybe not super pragmatic right away because there's a lot of moving parts here and Old Depot's injury and all that stuff. But eventually, ideally, would they be um, having this offense move at a higher clip? Obviously, something like Old Depot's passing improving is is a big deal when it comes to that kind of stuff. But I you mentioned a lot of stuff about the shots coming late in the shot clock. Uh, do you think that the, an improved um, offense in terms of speed is realistic by some point this season? Right. I mean, I think every single year, I mean, even going back to when Frank Vogel was still there, I can't remember a time when they didn't open up a, a preseason media day or whatever it may be saying, you know, we want to play faster. We, <laughs> yeah. want, we want to get more possessions. I feel like that's kind of a common frame from a lot of teams. I think that that's still a goal of the Pacers. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I think even more maybe important for them is not so much how many possessions they're getting but yeah what their speed level is in the half court how fast are they playing in between possessions because last year they were i mean it's hard to overstate how bad they were against teams against switching defenses so if you're just looking at that scenario like um they just didn't recognize really quickly and be able to make a quick post-entry pass or whatever, recognizing the mismatches and getting the ball where it needed to go. There was so much lag time, and that was kind of a, a fault of Darren's that it kind of took him a while to get into the office and set a screen. I remember one possession where you could visibly see Miles, like, egging him on, you know, having his arms going in a circle, like, come on, come on. You know, mm. that, that was kind of a common thing you would see of the Pacers last year. But, I mean, just like what I wrote there with Brogdon, that if because he is somebody that he's not going to be as apt to shoot a contested three as he is, uh, you know, if it's a bad pass where he, it has to get lofted out and that gives the low man time to close out to him. He's not going to be as apt to shoot a contested three as he is to pass or to drive. And if you're going to have that extra action at the end of the shot clock, you have to make sure that there's going to be time for that to be there. So just making quicker decisions and whether it's against a switching defense or not, I think needs to be a priority for them. They ranked pretty low, especially, I mean, I think even worse, obviously, after Victor went down, that they were one of the teams that was ranking with one of the highest frequencies and the percentage of their shots that they were taking at the end of the shot clock. And and they say that they like to play both fast and slow. They want to react quickly and transition because they're so good at forcing turnovers that they want to get easy offense that way. And then they want to work the offense at the other end and really make the defense have to work. But I think there's a difference between doing that and just kind of having to settle for whatever shot you get after you're, you know, if you're Darren in the playoffs and Al Horford gets a switch on you and you really can't break down your man off the dribble, there's a difference between that and actually working the ball around and making the defense work. So, yeah, I definitely think that that will once again be a refrain that we hear at Media Day that they want to play faster, even though they are going to be rotating a group of three centers on the floor. Yeah, that's definitely a common refrain for some NBA teams. I mean, some it, it makes way more sense. Like in this situation, I think obviously teams talk about it, you know, a lot so much so that you hear it over the t- uh, course of years. But I mean, you know, there's like the Lakers said it last season too, and that never really made any sense. But you know, a bunch of teams will will say it, and uh, I think in certain scenarios though, it actually uh, matters and and does make sense depending on how you're going about using uh, the times when you speed up and when you don't. But so, okay, defensively for the Pacers, I think Brogdon's an interesting case here as well because, like I mentioned before, talking about Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors playoffs and uh, watching him play on Milwaukee and coming out and defending Kawhi Leonard, and he did a really great job in that series. And uh, he was the guy, again, that Raptors fans shuddered 
whenever he came into the game, it was, oh, great, here comes Brogdon, things are about to switch around. The Raptors have to win these minutes if they want to win the game. Not just the Giannis minutes, but now the Brogdon minutes are things that people are actually keeping track of. Um, You're quick to point out, though, in this article, that he rarely guards smaller guards. And other point guards would be, you know, be something he'd have to do more with regularity in Indiana, especially if he wants to play the one guarding those positions. And when he has guarded starting ones, it hasn't gone well for him with the caveats, obviously, of tracking data. And he tends to get stuck on screens a lot and fails to recover, uh, like you point out, and have some really good video on that in this article as well. And you kind of mentioned how all of this might have like an impact on how the Pacers handle end-of-game situations, which I find really interesting because they don't have a guy like Corey Joseph anymore who's a good point-of-attack defender. And that probably means that you're moving Oladipo there. And if you move Oladipo there, he no longer has the ability to play free safety. And he's really great at running around and kind of just grabbing steals. And that's because you want to have Brogdon staying on wings because, like you said, I mentioned in the article, that he isn't great uh, guarding smaller guards that are quicker and faster. So all of this, like, is it a concern for the Pacers? Like, might they be worse in instances of crunch, crunch time because they have to make these changes? Or is it just going to be an adjustment and maybe it's not as big of a concern for people uh, as the season comes on? Right. So I think that they kind of headed into the offseason knowing that they were going to be willing to trade a little bit of, of defense for offense while also trusting in their overall defensive system i mean i think they kind of looked around in the playoffs as did several other teams seeing kind of what happened to themselves what happened to the magic against the raptors in the first round what happened to the thunder a lot of these teams that were defense first teams didn't really you know Mm. have the best playoff series so Mm -hmm. i think a lot of teams are kind of looking at the offensive end of the floor and i think for the pacers i mean they don't they don't have somebody that's really going to replicate what Corey did or somebody that's really going to replicate what thad did because even if you look at tj mcconnell you know he's somebody that can pick up from 94 feet and can kind of keep the ball moving and isn't you know too bad hitting pull up twos but he's he's so reluctant to take a three i think the only person that shot fewer threes than him last year was literally ben simmons so um Corey obviously went through a bad slump but he's at least willing to take that shot so in an in the game scenario you know teams are at least gonna account for him for the fact that he's a willing shooter whereas tj mcconnell is a is a non-shooter from that range so is that somebody that you're going to be willing to put on the floor in that situation maybe it depends on if you're ahead or if you're behind you know and they also have edmund sumner who can really hawk the ball but at at the point but he also is he's just really green and that he doesn't have a lot of experience so i don't know that that's somebody that nate would be willing to throw out there in an end of game situation and and he doesn't really shoot the three with i mean he's willing to shoot it but it, it isn't the same as as Corey in that regard either so i mean that's it's not really an answer that i i think that they have right now until they mm-hmm. see what how people return to training camp but i think right. that overall they were just kind of willing to trust in their system because you know you even look at at tj warren and that isn't i mean he kind of has this marker that he's he's just a scorer that he's pretty one-dimensional he isn't somebody that's going to be a passer or a defender or or you know a rebounder but then you also know what the narrative sort of what the narratives were about boyan bogdanovich when he was with washington or brooklyn and then by the time he came to indiana like i'm not going to say he was a stopper against lebron you know lebron fairly well dominated the pacers in the playoffs two years ago but he held his head above water i mean most Mm -hmm. games they were putting boyan bogdanovich against the other team's top wing so that victor could be 
uh, um, in that roaming sort of role. So I think they're kind of hoping that they're pretty good at refining defenders so that, mm-hmm. that they're going to have growth from those people on that end of the floor while they also think that they're going to get a little bit more scoring so that maybe that doesn't matter quite as much as it had to last year, that they were so dependent on being able to force turnovers and get stops because they just couldn't generate offense in the playoffs. I mean, as people know, when they were scoring in the 80s and had those really long droughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the internal development with the Pacers, I think, is going to be fascinating to watch because I feel like that's one of the most important things like for that team, but almost more than a lot of other teams. Like That's going to be one of the defining factors of this season for them, which is always super interesting, especially when you get glimpses into some of these players' off-seasons with uh, stuff like the FIBA World Cup going on. But I wanted to move to sort of the other side of this podcast quickly, which is more about the writing and the process of writing and, and how uh, people go about that kind of stuff. And I kind of wanted to start with just like the, the idea. So the general type of piece here, like you write a lot of breakdowns and analytic pieces. And I feel when I read your writing, it's very precise and surgeon-like. There's no messing around. You get right into the nuts and bolts of it. But at the same time, it's smooth and easy to understand. And I'm curious just right away, like, what's what's your writing background? Did you start with blogging or do you have a job where you write a certain way or did you have a background where you had to write things or what, what's going on there? Right. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, ever since college, yes, I just do sports blogging, but um, I studied history pretty extensively and I had a professor who later became my advisor. And I remember sitting down in his office hours one day and he was, he was telling me, he was like, try it. We were just discussing, you know, career aspirations and and what you might want to do and, and having a general conversation. And he said, you know, the, history has changed very much and, and the profession in that now with, you know, the internet and the way that we get information in so many different, you know, we have constant access to information that you don't really, a historian is no longer like the wise man in the way that he would have been, you know, centuries ago where this was the person that, you know, cataloged and that it's, it's become very much more about writing and, and argumentation. And you see that even mm-hmm. in when you're taking the courses and where that has shifted that, you know, you're not sitting down and taking multiple choice exams anymore when you're in like a 300 level or an advanced level history course, you're taking, um, essay-based exams where you're really being asked, I mean, in his class, you would, a question might be, how do you define success in the 1920s? That's not something that you're regurgitating facts. You're having to build an argument based on what you've learned and studied in the course. And obviously there's going to be, it's going to be fact-based information, but you're, you're really presenting it. So whenever I, I set out to do an analysis piece, um, I would say that like the numbers certainly matter. I value stats, but those are like my source based materials in the way that, you know, if I was writing a paper in, in my 1960s class where I would look up and, you know, everything has to be so well sourced that I want people to know, hey, I'm not just pulling out some random possession. There's mm-hmm. there's reason for having this. You know, I kind of have in the one section of this article a stat where I looked up where I really wish that you could um, filter all of that wonderful player tracking data where I looked at mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. often Darren drove per his touch time versus how often Malcolm drove per his touch time. I think that was an important number to add context to this, but I don't want the story to be the number. I want that to be, you know, kind of the, the context. And 
you know, I hope that it, it comes across pretty digestible. I want it to be something that I think that most fans will be able to open up and read and understand. But I also, you know, I don't want to talk down to people. I don't want to, you know, pretend as if I have all of these all knowing basketball answers and I know so much more than you. Like I want to be able to point things out, but mm-hmm. I also want it to become something where it, it feels like it's a conversation that we can read and there can be some color involved, whether that be, you know, certain verb usage or whatever it may be so that people aren't just getting bored to tears reading my ramblings. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I find that, um, it's, I always find the best articles for me anyway, in terms of reading, especially when they are analytic pieces and breakdowns is, uh, I mean, video helps as well. Um, but when the sort of the, target of the you know whatever the uh, point is that it's being made is starts off with all the the contextual stuff and then stats are being used as evidence or or sort of like the icing on the cake but all the stuff underneath that I think is uh, the most important and that's not to say that you know I test you know I test Twitter over analytics Twitter or whatever that argument is obviously you need both of them to make something coherent and, and um, I think more truthful but uh, I do think that the best articles tend to rely more on that stuff and showing and uh, that way than just throwing out a bunch of stats because I think we have entered a portion of you know the M- an NBA era, the basketball era, where that happens a lot, where people will throw out stats without having done the proper contextual research to actually kind of back up what what is really going on there, and then you might come up with an answer that's just you know, even slightly off of what's actually happening, but then, you know, you're still less truthful than you could have been. Right. Absolutely. I think, I think Jalen Rose had a, a Q and a, I can't, I can't remember right now who did it with him where he had some pretty interesting thoughts on the overall, what you just, you know, described that eye test versus stat Twitter and, mm-hmm. and, and what can be some of the pitfalls of that in terms of, you know, just bringing out one number and, and pretending that you have all the answers just based off of that stat. And I definitely value the numbers. I don't want it to sound as if I don't, I just, yeah. I just don't want that to be the meat and the potatoes as much as it's a nice, you know, garnish to what is already being laid out in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this article as well, it, it breaks things down by section here. Um, like I mentioned about Brogdon and then Oladipo and then the defense, does writing articles this way, does that help you with structure? Like, do you structure your pieces prior to going in or does it happen naturally? Or is this something that, you know, Indy Cornrows is like, you know, this is a kind of article that we do or how do you go about doing that stuff? Right. So at Indy Cornrows, I'm very lucky because our site manager, Tom Lewis, he gives me pre- the utmost freedom that I'll... Earlier in the summer, I did a series where instead of wanting to do regular, the same player review template, I wanted to present it as like an art gallery where I picked one video for each player or one screenshot for each player and wrote it through like the context of art and why why this this specific play defined that player's season. And I remember I had um, some preliminary stuff done and I contacted him and I was like, hey, I want this is what I want to do. It's, it's a little bit out there, but is this OK? And he was like, do it. 
nice. you know, so, so I get a lot of freedom to, to play around and I, I really appreciate that. But in the case of this particular article, it's a little bit of yes and no. I started out knowing that I wanted to, to look at both what Brogdon and Oladipo could do with the ball. And I started writing and I thought, you know, this is going to be kind of confusing if I'm constantly flipping back to, okay, but what if Victor does this? And okay, but what if Brogdon does this? And that, that kind of just, became natural and then I was like you know it, it would probably be easier if I structured it structured it as okay this is everything on Brogdon's side and this is everything on Victor's side but as just an aside to that I just really enjoy writing in August I know that a lot of <laughs> NBA Twitter gets very tired of August and some of the yeah. you know narratives that can emerge when people get bored but in general I really like it because you know most of the housekeeping stuff on on roster management and stuff is pretty much done by then and you can really just sink your teeth in and you have all this time to really dig in and and be able to look and and give people a taste of what they're wanting to see this past week I did one kind of similar to this with some of the other front court pairings that are not Turner and Sabonis because I think there might be some fatigue on that front and just being able to show some clips of you know Goga somebody that they didn't get to see in summer league and present that in sort of an analytical standpoint I mean in general this is a series that I try to do every August last year I did one with Tyreek and Victor and I did one with Turner and Sabonis because that wasn't so prevalent as it is now, but I don't always do them through the same lens. This was, this was a little bit different last year when I did Turner and Sabonis as I kind of hopped around the league and looked at how various teams had used double big lineups. I actually think one of you guys writers at Raptors Republic. I pulled a play out from that of how they had used, um, I want to say a Bach and Valanciunas from a couple of years ago with like a zipper horns play. And I was like, Oh, you know, you could, maybe the Pacers could borrow this. And I, I did it through that lens. And then this year I decided, you know, let's just do it through, you know, let's really dig in and look at how, what's going to happen when Brogdon is that primary initiator. And then let's look at what Victor's going to do. But yeah, these are generally two pieces that I'll do every August. And then I try to switch it up. So it isn't coming across as, you know, the same content every year. Are you more interested in the X's and O's of the game rather than the the storylines? Um, and I kind of ask this because not just because of like an article like this, but I've heard multiple people have this discussion before. Although I think it's going to be something that becomes a more prevalent discussion going forward. Do you, at the same time, like adding on to that? Do you think there should be a concern that there seems to be less focus among the masses on the actual games themselves and more on like the soap opera aspects of the league, like? I feel like some people, especially the people more interested in the X's and O's stuff than the storylines, and I'm I'm someone who's a bit a bit of a tweener, but when when I'm you know sitting at home watching games, like I I think I think more towards the X's and O's stuff than necessarily just the storylines. Um, but at what at what point are you going forward does actual basketball need to be prioritized? Because it does at some point, right? Like it, the the league is really going the way of most people, the general people, and you and I are both like hardcore fans, obviously, and and writers and and bloggers and stuff, but uh, among the masses, they seem to be most interested in in just the, the soap opera stuff. Like, that's why the offseason is such a big deal now. Right. So, I mean, I think Adam Silver might have touched on that in part at one of the pressers he did this yeah. summer, that he would kind of like there to be more of a focus on basketball. I mean, I think maybe as long as... My guess is they're going to be looking at the ratings. That sounds really simplistic, but unless mm. it starts like having a big impact where people aren't tuning in and watching the games to the mm-hmm. degree that they're wanting to sit around and you know look for what the next big rumor is, 
during you know the free agent period or the trade deadline or whatever might be popping up that happened from some practice or secret team meeting or you know whatever wherever you know said soap opera or palace intrigue might be coming from i don't know that they'll have that much of a concern about it i mean i don't want to sound like super pretentious i think that that can come off bad sometimes where it's like oh well we just need to be talking about basketball and that is all because i mean i'm not going to tell other people how to enjoy their own specific fandom right i read a lot of that stuff i mean that i think for my own personal writing I'm not going to be able to provide that content to the degree that, you know, the actual capital I industry people are because they have ready access to these players where a lot of this news will come out. And those things do provide context, whether all of us like it or not, you know, knowing what some of those interpersonal relationships are between a team does impact what's on the court, though I might argue that you would say that, you know, if if two players are having an issue that you would notice that on the court to an extent, but that provides the context and the background that you would need. But as me as a blogger at Indy Cornrows, I'm not going to be able to provide that content to a reader Mm -hmm. as much as I'm going to be able to say, Hey, look, look what happened on this possession. Like I described earlier against the Houston Rockets. Like I readily have that access in front of me and i think that can kind of be my niche but i think there's a place for all of it honestly like unless unless we get to the point where people are just you know so infatuated with the the stuff that they think that the game has become boring which i don't really anticipate happening and suddenly ratings are dropping i think that I, you know, I love being able to go and finding so many different voices on the internet and so many different angles to cover a basketball game that, you know, it doesn't stop me from reading other content just because it isn't an X's and O's article. I mean, sure. Do I want to learn from like, you know, whether it be Mike Prada here at SB Nation or, or, you know, Zach Lowe or, Mm -hmm. you know, even some of the coaches that are out there, you know, I love looking at Mo's, um, Twitter threads that he does on yeah. these Team USA games. I love looking at some of the various other um, thread thread uh, makers of film breakdown. I love. I mean, I enjoy all of it. So it, it's not going to stop me from reading any of it. But it's certainly in a conversation that I have seen more prevalent this summer than ever before. Yeah, when I so I'm obviously I've mentioned on this podcast a few times, but I'm like currently on the path to try and break into the the sports industry here. And um, when I was started at Raptors Republic, I guess this will be going into my third season, so two years ago now, which is kind of crazy. At some point, I kind of realized or thought about how I only have access to so much, obviously, and so there are certain types of articles that I feel comfortable writing and other kinds where I feel like there's maybe too much reading into things going on when I don't have the access. Right. And... I've, that's partly why I started this journey now to go towards, um, you know, more deeply into the sports industry because you get that access. And I've been very lucky to have some of that access with different teams. And it really is like there is a striking difference between sitting down and saying like, okay, this is the stuff that I have before me that I can work with and here's what I don't. So I'm going to write, you know, I'll write about Pascal Siakam's efficiency or something. I can do that from home, but you want to talk about, you know, stuff that's really that's going on with him on a more of a personal level and sort of add that into that type of article. Well, you kind of need to be there. And uh so I I do think that's it's it's something that I feel like a lot of bloggers deal with and 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 struggle with when trying to find their niche because there's a lot because of that. I feel like there's a lot of similar stuff going on out there and um I obviously the best bloggers manage to uh, stick out by just like finding their own voice and um, present stuff in, in a way that's unabashedly themselves. 
So, um, yeah, I, I just think that's an interesting and, and topic that I've, I've dealt with and, like, mo- trying to move to the other side is, uh, is fascinating. Um, and so, so sort of attached to that, something that you do and that I've done, um, obviously, is blogging. And, and blogging and, and the sports industry, at least here, is, is so fascinating because there's so many people coming up, moving actually into the industry from the blogging world, which is something that obviously never used to happen. And there's the connection between blogging and real life, and a lot of people do it. You know, they work their nine to five job and they go home and they and they blog, but it can feel like a full time commitment. And a lot of people I know say that it feels like a second job. I, I was curious for you, like, how do you find handling the balance between you know doing whatever uh, stuff you need to do in your personal life, and then also putting in all the time and effort to um, blog, and not just blog, but like you know, really dig into stuff and put out these in-depth articles on, on players that, uh, that you've been keeping track of. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that can definitely be a a tough balance and I don't want it to sound like, Oh, you know, woe is me because this is definitely something that I I've chosen Mm -hmm. to be able to be a contributor at Indy Cornrows. But I also, I mean, my, my day job, I have quite a bit of flexibility because I'm a lot, I work that from that at home for, um, computer consulting business where I'm able to kind of set my own hours. So I have a little bit more flexibility than I know a lot of my colleagues do in that regard where they, you know, are actually going to a nine to five and then coming home. But I mean, one example that I would use is last year at the trade deadline, you know, my site manager and I, we are, we are the two writers from any cornrows that are kind of on task all day during that to see, you know, if, if a rumor comes up that is pretty well sourced or it looks like something's happening, we need to get up a, a news piece really mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. so during the day i mean the pacers were pretty quiet they had a piece where they made like you know a periphery trade where they got a second round pick and then they waived um Ikanabogu. and tom and i kind of split that up between the two of us and then that night you know i was like you know i would really like to be able to write a breakdown on wesley matthews and i feel like kind of the sooner i get that up the better because i don't want it to be a retread braced on you know maybe somebody else gets up another piece and you know maybe it it feels like overkill and and i think i have a really good angle on that because wesley was coming from dallas and the pacers had kind of incorporated some sets from dallas whenever um, Doug McDermott came over to kind of make him feel more comfortable mid- midway through the season where you would see they were running the exact same plays. I'm like, you know, that would be interesting to dig into. So I started writing that article. And by the time I was done putting it together, I didn't actually go to sleep until about 5 or 6 a.m. And then wow. about two hours later, I was up doing my actual job after that. So. Huh. I mean, that's just kind of a scenario that I think a lot of people don't see that behind the scenes where, yeah, it is. Sometimes it can be like you're working two actual jobs. And I was happy I got that piece done because it did get out really quick. And I was kind of able to put my stamp out there on it. And I, you know, I don't want to say, Oh, I was first on this because it was very different than what other people would have written. I think, I mean, that's one thing that's great about Pacers Twitter. I think we have so many different diverse voices and angles where there Mm -hmm. isn't so much overlap between writers, but it was something that I knew that people were going to want to know more about him the next day versus like a week later. I mean, that's a difference between this, this piece and something that's more time sensitive like that. This one, I felt like I really had time to, it's like, you know, there's a trade off of which is going to be better that I really digest this. And I feel like I come up with something that is really going to show people into what Malcolm Brogdon can be. Or I, you know, I stay up all night tonight after the first day of free agency to break down Malcolm Brogdon. Like in my case, knowing what I would have come up with then versus what I did come up with, I think that readers got the better end of the stick here, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, it can definitely be a grind. Do you ever find that there's burnout 
And if so, how do you get past it? Because, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you like writing in August and stuff, and a lot of people and bloggers I know don't, and it's the, sort of the doldrums of the NBA season, that's partly why, but also because they're tired. They, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff all season long, so they, they kind of need that period to recharge. Yes, definitely. I mean, again, at Indie Corners, we have very um, specific roles where um, Nathan, who I think is great at writing recaps, he does pretty much all of our game recaps unless he's going to you know, need a night off for whatever reason. And then I or Tom or one of our other writers will fill in. But And Tom does. He has a podcast that's affiliated with the website, and he does a lot of game threads and game preview stuff. And then I kind of get to slide in with analysis pieces. So that makes my job a little less um, nightly where I'm having to come up with a recap, you know, every single game where Mm -hmm. I can kind of take, you know, X amount of days to come up with what I'm coming with. But as far as fatigue, yes. Like I will (laughs) say that I get, I'm, I kind of have a need to be different. So, um, the Turner's the bonus thing. I remember two years ago, the very first game of the year, I noticed that Nate McMillan had kind of played them. I don't know, like less than five minutes together, but they had played them together. And I was like, you know, that's really interesting in terms of that could be what's next. And, and the Pacers had played at like an outrageous pace that night against the Nets and it scored all these points. And I was like, you know, can I get away with writing about something that only happened in five minutes time? And I was like, yes, yes, I can. So <laughs> I wrote that piece about Turner Sabonis and then nothing really more materialized that particular year and then last summer it was an August piece where I kind of felt like you know I made the argument that I thought they really needed to delve into that last year and do their research and discovery last year before they had to make decisions on Sabonis's extension and I still kind of think that way you know it won't be as big of a deal if they reach a a reasonable and I, I hate to use this word and think of players in in this context, but if they can get to a, tr- a potentially tradable number, it's not so bad because that gives them more time to evaluate that pairing with Victor Oladipo mm-hmm. and they don't lose some of the leverage that they might have had last um, February if they had if they knew what they had in the pairing and decided, hey, you know, that's not working out, then they would have been able to tell teams, hey, we're trading you a guy that you're going to be able to negotiate an extension with versus, you know, next February if they don't reach an extension agreement with him prior to February, then they're coming into those trade negotiations from the side of, you know, this is going to be a restricted free agent and how, you know, how does that impact his return? But from the sense that I, that's how I presented that one. And I told myself, you know, you cannot write about this pairing all the time until something changes. And I, I kind of just, there's been so many articles published on it that I kind of grew tired of the topic. So that's where I would say that, my fatigue sort of comes from is from actual topics. And I didn't, I didn't write about them again until the playoffs because Mm -hmm. unless something new popped up and I felt like in the playoffs it did because they had some of those struggles against the cross matches and what would that mean? And what would, what would Nate McMillan have more of a stomach for versus, you know, are, is he going to be willing to downsize or is he going to be willing to trust in them to make sort of the reads on the floor that they would need to make to have the elbow room to coexist when plays break down. And, and, and as you'll see this August, I did not write about them again because I feel like there's nothing more to be said there until you actually see the on-court product and what sort of growth each one of them may have made over the summer and how Nate McMillan handles them. So 
during the su- during the season and during the summer, I would say that it, it can become hard for me to be like, oh no, do I have to write about that again? And I kind of noticed from like the Clippers bloggers over the summer, a few of them that I know that they were kind of having that feeling, just covering, as I'm sure you probably did too, just covering like the Kawhi Leonard drama yeah. over, oh, do I have, do I really need to write another article that you know Kawhi bought boxes at at Home <laughs> Depot or wherever he was? So yeah. Like being able to come with that sort of motivation of what new angle can I bring to this? Or is there even new information where I need to present this topic again? And will my voice on it be the same as it was, you know, even here lately, that was part of the reason why I didn't do an August article on them is because I've done a couple podcasts where I kind of felt like, you know, I said, I, what I said on those two podcasts is the same thing that I would write. So do we, do we really need more of me on that topic? Like some other writers are doing it now from other sites and that's great because they're going to have a different voice on it than what I would. Mm -hmm. But that, that's where my source of fatigue comes from. Yeah, I definitely felt similar with the Kawhi thing for sure. I actually, I barely wrote any articles on Kawhi, which I feel sort of weird about now because it ultimately ended up being a one year venture in Toronto, but yeah, I there was there was just so much like there's so much heaviness and weight that comes to um with a player like that and and like all the stuff around them that you kind of just want to feel like some sort of levity so you write about something else. Like even when the Raptors made the trade that summer for Kawhi Leonard, I wrote about Danny Green. I didn't write about Kawhi Leonard. I wrote about the Raptors getting Danny Green and how that would be a a pump up to their system. But um yeah, so I, de- I definitely know what that feeling is like for sure. Do you ever feel like you're prioritizing um, either blogging or your, your real job, like one over the other? Does it ever change? Is it a good thing? Like, obviously, I think most people would say they want, you want to prioritize your, you know, the thing that pays you more, the thing that you're doing that's like, this is my actual job and blogging is a hobby. But do you ever feel like sometimes you're so deep into the blogging that you're actually prioritizing that over everything else? Um. That's a tough question. Um, yeah, I would say because um, I've kind of tried to do uh, to see where I can go with blogging to an extent. I mean, I've had yeah. um, without going into super detail, I did a freelance piece with SB Nation um, dot com site last year, and I've had some other, you know, whether it be freelance or other opportunities from other outlets, and none of them have quite felt like what would be the right fit for me Mm -hmm. where, you know, I kind of would like to, if I'm going to take this to a different level where I would, I think ultimately I fit best digging in on one specific team and really showing people the nooks and crannies of where that team is at versus covering the NBA overall at large. I mean, I, I'm in awe of the people that can do that and that can dive in and drop in at a team and, and go from covering the Mavericks one night and do equally well writing about that team as they do the Phoenix Suns two nights later. I'm not sure that that's where my writing would be the best fit. So, um, I think a lot of times, yes, I probably do focus on the blogging a little bit more in the sense that this is a creative outlet, whereas my day job is more, um, I do a lot of uh, the business side of things, um, accounts receivable and whatnot, where that's kind of like, I mean, how should I describe it? It's it's basically like a muscle memory type thing where I'm not really having to to think about what angle or, you know, whatever uh, I want to take on something. Whereas this, I it's a lot of um, 
I think sometimes with writers, we don't even really think about all of the time that they're spending just thinking about a topic. I mean, at least that's with me. I, I shouldn't speak for you, but I spend a lot of time before I ever even start looking at that blinking cursor, just, you know, having ideas roll around mm-hmm. in my head about what I want to take for, you know, what, two weeks from now, if I write this one this way, can I, can I, will I be able to squeeze in an article about, you know, how Boyan Bogdanovich uses pin down screens? You know, I spend a lot of time just thinking, and sometimes that can even take place while I'm sitting there, you know, inputting in data while I'll Mm -hmm. be sitting there, you know, because that is so much muscle memory. So yes, I would, I would probably say that, um, hopefully my, my boss isn't going to get too angry with me. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes, um, more of my brain power is being used towards, um, my blogging than it is my regular day job. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because so part of the reason I started, you know, deciding, okay, I'm actually really going to make for make a push and go to school and and try to get into the sports industry was because uh, I was originally in the publishing industry and I was uh, sitting at work and going through my normal day and, uh, you know, doing whatever I was doing. And I think there was only like a couple hours left in the day for me. And uh, at some point, uh, I think this was right around when Chris Paul uh, was moving on from the Clippers. And I, I had a notebook there that's for, you know, stuff that I need to keep track of at work. And I ended up writing down like six different Chris Paul article ideas. And, uh, it was at that moment that I was like, you know, I might, uh, this is all I can think about right now. I might kind of be in the wrong spot for me here. So, um, it was part of the thing that, that pushed me ultimately towards, uh, trying to to prioritize this for myself over some other things so i i find that that all that stuff fascinating how people manage to handle that stuff when you know they they love covering mba and blogging so much and they also have other things you know you need to do you obviously need to make money and eat and um people have real jobs that they enjoy and whatever so uh that balance is obviously a, a fascinating thing but uh yeah, that's uh, pretty much all the time we have here today. So uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on, Caitlin. I really appreciate it. And is there anything you want to plug before we go? Oh, no problem. First of all, I just want to say that like I looked, I listened to this podcast. I think it's, oh, wow. it's a you. valuable one. I listened to the one with um, Mirren from... Um, back when she wrote her Brandon Ingram piece and just right. how much in awe I usually am of her and the way that she can humanize athletes and listen to one from Brady who I'm familiar with because he's also an SB Nation writer and I just really I remember a couple years back I listened to a podcast um, that SB Nation used to host they don't any longer that Paul Flannery had with Lee Jenkins and how fascinated mm. I just was to listen to what his writing process was so I, as a writer I really enjoy the pod and I'm very humbled that the, with the list of writers that you've had that you wanted to have me on. So thank you. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I have another piece that's people like the Brogdon Oladipo one. It's not quite the same lens. I looked at it through, um, what I predicted, what some small sample size lineups would be, but I looked at, um, Goga and Turner and Warren Sabonis and it's, it's pretty similar in overall tone. So that's another new one. And I'm sure we'll probably have some world cup content over the next two weeks or so. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate you coming on. You're on uh, my long list of, uh, I've mentioned <laughs> before on this podcast, but I have a long list of writers I've, I really want to get on this podcast, and you've been on there for a while. So I'm very happy you're able to come on and make the time. Um, if you're looking for this podcast, it is called the Writer's Write Podcast, and you can find it on Anchor.fm or the Anchor app if you have it. It is also now available on Apple Podcasts. You can find it there. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Writer's Write Pod. And links to the episodes will be posted there as well as links to my guest articles. Until then, you can follow me at Howvolution on Twitter and you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic as always. 
Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.